This Dharma Talk was presented at the Austin Zen Center in Austin, Texas. For more information, visit austinzencenter.org. Good morning. Well, this is a little bit unexpected. Um, for me, certainly, I don't know if you all uh, knew that Mako was intending to give the talk this morning, um, but she's homesick. Um, I think uh, some other folks have been sick with a kind of similar sore throat, and um, so she wasn't feeling well and also didn't want to kind of spread the, the fun. <laughs> so um, we're going to launch on an adventure together because I only found out that I might give a talk, you know, an hour ago. Um, and I think um, I'm going to keep it pretty simple and kind of just go through a, a Suzuki Roshi talk and maybe comment on it a little bit. Um, but prior to doing that, I wanted to um, say for those that weren't there, two weeks ago we had our annual membership meeting, um, which I thought went really well and it was really kind of unifying for the Sangha to come together and share information about what it is we're doing together. Um, and I think <clears throat> some feeling has kind of um, arisen in me that um, we're kind of, we're building something together. And um, in the wake of kind of discord and unhappiness and people leaving the Sangha, um, that we're kind of having to start over in some way, not completely, but, um, and I think that's showing signs of real progress. Like I'm kind of buoyed by the, um, the energy and the direction of the Sangha. Um, but the reality is that we don't have um, a lot of people here that necessarily have a lot of experience in, in practice, maybe compared to some other centers. And so we're really kind of... Um, Yeah, having to kind of start at a kind of foundational level and kind of build our Sangha together. And um, I think Mako and I have been talking about kind of things that we would like to kind of communicate or um, help instill in, in our effort to create this Sangha together. And, um, <clears throat> and one is a sense of ownership you know, sense of ownership of the Sangha members who come here. Um, so I think one of the, the great lessons of Zen is that um, the more we sit and the more we practice, the more kind of our understanding or feeling of what um, Zazen mind is or what um, practice is widens to include more and more kind of aspects of our own experience, of our own life, um, of the world around us. So I think it's pretty common that when we start um, practice, we come to the center and sit in meditation, and then we walk out that door, and that was sort of, that was our practice. Um, that was our moment of practice for the day or the week. Um, but I think the experience of living in a monastery is this encouragement, like how do we 
um, continue to take kind of the, the settledness or the kind of just presence. Doesn't, Sazen doesn't necessarily always have to feel settled. Sometimes it's um, kind of a wild ride. Um, but hopefully we're bringing some kind of um, willingness to see what's happening, to kind of be with ourselves. And um, I think the, the kind of in practice that begins to, over time, kind of widen and widen. And we're kind of able to kind of be with more things without necessarily turning away. Um, <clears throat> and so part of this broadening of practice to aspects of our life includes our Sangha work together. So how do the activities of the temple and the, the roles that we fill, um, how do those become our, our practice? How does Zazen inform the way that we're present and available for those moments? Um, and so I think there's um, maybe a fundamental misunderstanding that um, it would be good for us to investigate together. And that is, I think our usual notion of a Sangha or a religious center is that I go there and I kind of, I give my time and effort to them or to this thing. Um, and I think, I think for Mako, this is represented by the, the word volunteer, you know, like I'll volunteer to help out at the center. Um, and, I th and I think we want to kind of um, tweak that a little bit in the sense that um, actually this center is your life. You know, this isn't something that you kind of give your time and energy to. It is your own immediate experience. And so can we view, um, uh, you know, cooking for the, the Sangha or, um, you know, cook. we have a work day next Saturday, so coming and cleaning the grounds. You know, can we see that as taking care of our own life, actually, and not necessarily taking care of, of something outside of me? Um, so maybe that's enough on that, but I want to kind of plant that seed about how do we make as a group, as a Sangha, this transformation from kind of um, me showing up in and kind of offering something to like us totally um, inhabiting our activity together as our own life, as the life of a kind of shared life. Um, so the other thing that came out of this annual meeting that I wanted to mention is that um, we were kind of making an effort to highlight um, people who are kind of uh, people and activities that are already kind of doing this, I think. Um, one was, was, was Rich, and, and Rich's practice of kind of taking care of the altar flowers. You know, he's, um, he's kind of inhabiting a role that is his kind of his own life, but it's being expressed kind of for all of us or with all of us. Um, and I felt after the meeting kind of badly because I didn't mention the residents. Um, and I, and I, I, I want to uh, acknowledge and appreciate the, the residents that live here because in a way they're really already doing this. They're already kind of placing themselves in a way where 
their life and the life of the Sangha are kind of deeply intertwined. Um, and um, I don't know if, if the residents just want to raise, raise their hands in case people don't know who, who lives here. Okay, thank you. So um, I, I'm very appreciative of your, your efforts in taking care of this place and, and our practice together, so thank you. <clears throat> so I'm literally just selecting a talk at this moment. <laughs> <laughs> So this is one of my favorites. This is a collection of talks by Shinryu Suzuki, for those that don't know, who is the, the founder of this kind of um, stream of, uh, or lineage of, of um, Zen, Zen Buddhism in America, um, and the founder of the San Francisco Zen Center. Um, <clears throat> and this might even sound like I'm, I'm kind of taking the opposite tact of what I was just saying, but um, this talk is titled, Find Out for Yourself. <clears throat> so the sort of, um, the quote that's sort of taken out of the talk at the top says, Whatever happens, whether you think it is good or bad, study closely and see what you find out. This is the fundamental attitude. Sometimes you will do things without much reason, like a child who draws pictures, whether they are good or bad. If that is difficult for you, you are not actually ready to practice Sazen. <clears throat> so he says, in your Sazen or in your life, you will have many difficulties or problems. Is this people's experience of Sazen? <laughs> <clears throat> When you, have, when you have a problem, see if you can find out for yourself why you have a problem. <clears throat> and that might not mean exactly what you think it means. So he clarifies, he says, uh, usually you will try to solve your difficulty in the best way as soon as possible. Rather than studying for yourself, you ask someone why you have a problem. That kind of approach may work well for your usual life, but if you want to study Zen, it doesn't help. Hmm. So I think that's true, that in my own experience, often my, my relationship to myself is kind of, um, what's the problem right now, you know? It's like I'm almost looking for, for what the problem is. And then if I think I discover it, it's, well, how do I solve that problem? Or how do I get rid of that problem? Um, and there's almost a notion of like, if I get rid of that problem or I solve that problem, then everything will be okay. You know, then I'll be all right. I'll feel, feel okay. Um, and this really, in a way, is the opposite of what we're doing in Zen practice. Um, 
because even though I, I act in that way or I follow this thread of I discovered what the problem is, now I get rid of it and then I'll feel okay, um, perhaps there's a lot that I'm going to miss, even if I'm successful in that activity. Perhaps there's a lot I'm going to miss about what this problem actually has to offer me, has to kind of show or unravel about what kind of the nature of our, our life is. And so in Zen, um, in Suzuki Roshi says this, and, and I'm not necessarily always able to kind of take this on, but he says we should be thankful for our problems. You know, our problems are a kind of gift. Um, I don't know, you could say a gift from the universe to open us up to kind of joining everything. And if you look at it that way, then yeah, I'm missing a lot if I take that problem, somehow get rid of it and move on. Like I've missed this wonderful opportunity. <clears throat> He says, the moment you are told something by someone and you think you understand, you will stick to it and you will lose the full function of your nature. It's a wonderful phrase, the full function of your nature. When you seek something, your true nature is in full activity. As if you are feeling for your pillow in the dark. If you know where the pillow is, your mind is not in full function. Your mind is acting in a limited sense. When you seek for the pillow without knowing where it is, then your mind is open to everything. In this way, you will have a more subtle attitude towards everything, and you will see things as it is. So this is that's the kind of wonderful non-dual dual mixing phrase of Suzuki Roshi, things as it is. I think the first time he said it, somebody tried to correct him because his English wasn't so good. You know. Don't you mean things as they are? <clears throat> no, things as it is. So that's this things, the kind of the multitude, individuality, and as it is, is kind of the wholeness. That these things that we perceive are not actually um, completely separate in any way. If I had had maybe more time to prepare for this talk, I would have found the um, koan that he's referring to. But um, it's something about, it's a, um, a teaching story or teaching device where there's a student and a teacher having a kind of back and forth. Um, and it involves Avalokiteshvara, I believe, like um, Avalokiteshvara being the bodhisattva of compassion. And the teacher says something like, All over the whole body are um, eyes and, and hands or something, over the whole body. 
And the student, I think, is having difficulty kind of understanding what that might mean. And um, there's this wonderful kind of um, Yeah, so this te the teacher says something like, it's like reaching for the pillow in the middle of the night. So maybe we've had a restless sleep and we've kind of turned sideways on the bed or something. Um, and the room is completely dark, but the, um, you know, without getting up out of bed and turning the light on and seeing where the pillow is on the bed, it's this kind of like, the activity of kind of knowing something's there and reaching out and sensing, you know, do I, oh, there, yeah. Um, allowing our kind of um, sensitivity to expand beyond our kind of physical body. Um, and I think that's sort of an example of this phrase that he uses, um, he says, the moment you are told something by someone and you think you understand, so we've gone to look for a solution to our problem and somebody said, oh, this is what it is. Oh, okay, I understand, that's my problem. He says, if you act in that way, if you kind of, um, in a way, um, deprioritize your own kind of sensitivity and experience of the world, and say, why don't you tell me what's what's happening? And then, oh, okay, I understand what you're saying is happening. It's not that that's a bad thing. And there is this kind of um, aspect of Zen practice where it's very important to ask for other perspectives. Um, but we have to be careful of not allowing those other perspectives to kind of outweigh our own kind of experiential understanding of the world. So we have to kind of trust our own um, full functioning. And that doesn't necessarily mean our, our ideas of what we think is happening, but we have to trust that, that kind of reaching for the pillow. Um, so he says, the moment you are told something by someone and you think you understand, you will stick to it and you will lose uh, the full function of your nature. So then he continues, if you want to study something, it is better not to know what the answer is. This is this, you know, his famous beginner's mind. In the beginner's mind, there are kind of endless possibilities of what might be. Um, and he prized that kind of um, attitude in our life. And that attitude gets harder and harder the more we think we know, the more we think we know what it is to be a human being or what I'm doing here, that, that already is starting to limit this kind of um, fathom, uh, fathomless um, possibility of, of what's actually occurring. Um, if you want to study something, it's better not to know what the answer is. Because you are not satisfied with something you are told, and because you cannot rely on anything set up by someone else, you study Buddhism without knowing how to study it. In this way, you find out for yourself what we really mean by Buddha nature, practice, or enlightenment. 
So it's only when we're not totally satisfied with the answer that we get and we kind of launch out on our own kind of inquiry, only then do we kind of um, understand what Buddha nature means, what practice means, what enlightenment might mean. Since you seek freedom, you try various ways. Of course, you will sometimes find that you have wasted your time. If a Zen master drinks sake, you may think the, the best way to attain enlightenment is to drink sake. <laughs> but even though you drink a lot of sake, as he does, you will not attain enlightenment. <laughs> it may look like you've wasted your time, but your attitude is important. If you continue to try to find out in that way, you will gain more power to understand things. Whatever you do, you will not waste your time. That's very sweet and encouraging. <laughs> Even though we've kind of launched off on some tangential path in our life for 20 years, um, trying to drink sake like the master does or something, um, it, none of it was a waste of time um, in reality. So uh, this does point out this line that I feel like I'm walking today because um, in my first comments about um, how do we practice together completely? Like how do we kind of give over to our life together? And I think a piece of that is like how do we give over to uh, our teachers and um, how do we um, open ourselves up to some process of allowing ourselves to be seen, you know, um, to be encouraged, but, but also maybe questioned or, um, yeah, that kind of glare of being seen can be very intimidating sometimes. Um, and so there's a courage needed in practice to kind of um, be willing to, to, to be in that space. Um, and it is important that we listen to what um, the feedback is that comes from our teacher or our kind of, even our peers in practice. You know, I want to check in with you about this way that I'm seeing things, you know. Um, so we do open ourselves up. And then this talk is more focusing on, but we also have to kind of um, balance that with what is some kind of deep, um, energetic um, understanding of the world in me, or, or that's located here. I don't know what me necessarily is, but um, how do I trust that? How do I stay faithful to that? in the face of also kind of being willing to be open with other people. Um, so that's the line that I feel like um, is in this talk and in, in my own experience of practice. Um, and of course, <clears throat> we live in a world or a society that has um, 
it's quite often trying to convince us of things. You know, this is the product you need. You know, this will make you happy. And so, um, this aspect of, of Zen and Suzuki Roshi's teachings, um, I find really important, and I do want to encourage to um, to kind of become conscious of the ways that we're kind of being um, told how we should feel. And to remember, and this is partly in Zazen, you know, remember to check in with, what, well, how do I feel? Is that, you know, I'm being encouraged to feel a certain way, but is that actually how I feel? Um, because sadly, there's a way that we can kind of become so distant from our own um, experience that we actually believe the message more than we believe our own um, feeling or experience. <clears throat> now I've totally lost where the talk was. It's like searching for the pillow. <laughs> exactly. Thank you. <laughs> He says, he continues, when you do something with a limited idea or with some def definite purpose, what you will gain is something concrete. Which is often kind of how we want it to be. We're looking for something concrete. Um, in a way, that's our, it's an aspect of our nature. We really want something complete, concrete. We find it very difficult to stay open in the face of not knowing of not being totally sure, even though that's that's the encouragement of practice, that's the encouragement of beginner's mind. Uh, when we do something with a limited idea or some definitive purpose, uh, we what we will gain is something concrete. This will cover up your inner nature. So it is not a matter of what you study, but a matter of seeing things as it is accepting things as it is. So that's a phase shift in the way that we engage our life between I have a purpose and I'm doing this thing and I'm going to get some concrete result to just stopping and seeing things as it is. And even, even harder, I think, is the second one, like accepting things as it is. Because often we see things as it is, and it's now that's not the way I want it to be, you know. Um, no, that's that's not right. That, that shouldn't be that way. Um, so there's again a courage to being willing to see things as it is, and then a kind of further courage being willing to say, "Yeah, that's how it is. That's how my experience is at this moment." And the kind of antidote or the kind of balance for that is, and everything's changing. So if, if the thing that I see feels unacceptable and, I, and I'm struggling to accept it, it's also not forever, whatever it is. <clears throat> Some of you may study something only if you like it. <laughs> if you don't like it, you ignore it. <clears throat> That is a selfish way, and it also limits your power of study. Good or bad, small or big, 
we study to discover what the true reason why something is so big or why something is so small, why something is so good or why, and why something is not so good. If you try to discover only something good, you will miss something and you will always be limiting your faculties. When you live in a limited, limited world, you cannot accept things as it is. So even on some subtle level, if I'm kind of, if my intention is um, to kind of gauge everything as good or bad, big or small, and kind of soothe myself with that definition, like, oh, I know that's good, I know that's bad, you know, okay, I, I understand the world. Um, if, if my attitude is that way, then it's, then it's, he's saying, it's sort of impossible to actually accept the reality of our life. Um, even a Zen master had just two or three, even a Zen master had just two or three students, he would never tell them our way in detail. <laughs> the only way to study with him is to eat with him, talk with him, and do everything with him or her. Uh, you may help her without being told how to help her. Mostly, she will not seem to be very happy, and she will always be scolding you without any apparent reason. <laughs> because you cannot figure out the reason, you will not be so happy, and she will not be so happy. If you really want to study with her, and you will study how to please her, how to make your life with her a happy one. You may say that this, is a, this way of practice is very old-fashioned. It may be so, but I think you had this kind of life in Western civilization too, although not exactly as we did in Japan. The reason why people had a difficult time with their teachers is that there is no particular way for us to study. So it's, it's sort of being kept in that not knowing that feel scary, that we rebel against, and we kind of maybe even run away from the teacher or um, run away from the situation that's kind of keeping us in that not knowing. <clears throat> Each one of us is different from the other. So each one of us must have our own way, and according to the situation, we should change our way. You cannot stick to anything. The only thing to do is to discover the appropriate way to act under new circumstances. For instance, in the morning we clean. I think this is referring to soji, which is a, a kind of temple cleaning that we do in silence after morning zazen. Um, we don't have enough rags or brooms, so it is impossible to participate in our cleaning. Under these circumstances, it is still possible to figure out something to do. I don't scold you very much, but if I were a strict Zen master, I would be very angry with you, because you give up quite easily. <laughs> oh no, there is no more much cleaning up equipment, or there is nothing for me to do. 
You are prone to think this way and easily give up. In such a case, please try hard to figure out how to practice. If you are very sleepy, you may think it's better to rest. Yes, sometimes it is better. But at the same time, it may be a good chance to practice. So I think anybody who's ever come to morning zazen has had this debate in their head. <laughs> What's the right answer? Do I really need sleep or do I need to practice with my feeling like I don't want to get out of bed? Um, and if you live in a monastery, you get lots of opportunities to practice this and watch as our, you know, our mind kind of um, can rationalize it one way or the other. And it still might not be the right answer. And then again, this is find out for yourself, like come back to the felt experience. You know, maybe you harangued yourself so much that you finally got out of bed and you got to the cushion and you're sitting there, you know, the kind of the Zazen two-step, they call it like that. <laughs> um, and, and maybe, maybe in that instance, it, like, it's sort of like, oh, physiologically, there's not enough energy somehow to sit upright. You know, maybe today was the day I should have stayed in bed. Maybe I made a mistake in saying, I just need to practice with this. But um, you know, the other way can happen too. You can stay in bed and sleep for another two hours and wake up feeling awful. You know, like, oh, I wish I had sat awesome this morning. Um, and that's okay like that's sort of the attitude I think he's describing is that like we kind of make a decision or we have this experience of deliberation or debate or kind of and then we uh, we make a choice in every moment we're making a choice like um, and maybe the choice is just to hit the snooze button or something but then the practice is like what um, what do I notice about how that decision has affected, affected my, ex my experience of my reality? Uh, and stay with that question. You know, there's not necessarily a, a kind of definitive answer to that question, but it's staying with the kind of, maybe that was the right decision and maybe not. Let's see. Let's see what happens. Let's stay close to that kind of question. When I was at Aheji assisting my teacher, he did not tell us anything. But whenever we made it a mistake, he scolded us. <laughs> and Suzuki Roshi is a, I mean, in his life story, he went to study with his master when he was like 12 or 13. Um, and the guy was, you know, the, the sort of old, crotchety, angry, Zen master, you know, he wasn't somebody who was um, had much patience or tolerance for the kind of um, for the child, which Suzuki Roshi still was. And um, there's lots of stories in Zen of kind of um, masters who had no more than two or three students, and he kind of mentions it here. And I think Suzuki Roshi arrived at his master's temple with a group of like eight or 10 other kids. And I think within a few weeks, you know, it was just him and maybe one or two other guys. <laughs> Everybody else ran away. And that was kind of normal. <laughs> that was sort of how Zen practice was done. So, 
Uh, maybe we should consider ourselves lucky or not that we don't face those same uh, circumstances in practice. Whenever we made a mistake, he scolded us. The usual way to open sliding doors is to open uh, one to the right, <clears throat> is to open the one on, on the right. But when I opened it that way, I was scolded. Don't open it that way, not that side. So the next morning, I opened the other side and got scolded again. I didn't know what to do. Later, I found out that the day I opened the right side, what his guest was on the right side. I should have opened the other side. Before opening the door, I should have been careful to find out which side his guest was on. The day I was appointed to serve him, I gave him a cup of tea. Usually you fill 80% of the cup, since that is the rule, and Aheji has a kind of standard for everything, you know, the, the kind of the way you wash your face in the morning is standardized, you know. So this, um, it's built so that every waking moment of your life is very consciously practiced. Um, so apparently the standard in serving tea to the master is 80% of the cup. Um, <clears throat> since that is the rule, I filled 80% or 70%. And he said, give, give me hot tea. Fill the cup with very hot, strong tea. So the next morning, when there were some guests, I filled all the cups with hot, strong tea, almost 99%, and served them. I was scolded. <laughs> Actually, there is no rule. <laughs> he himself liked very hot, bitter tea, filled to the brim. But almost all the guests didn't like hot, bitter tea. <laughs> for him, I should serve hot, bitter hot tea, and for the guests, I should offer tea the usual way. So I think this sounds familiar to all of us. We, we have some experience with the world or with another person, and then we get some feedback, oh, that was not right, or that was right. And then we create this little rule in our head, like, and, and we, f we were so faithful to this rule, like from that one experience, um, I'm supposed to do it this way. And there's a kind of blindness that sets into, well, have the circumstances changed? You know, has the request from the other person changed? Are they actually a different person somehow now? <laughs> Instead, we've kind of had one experience, made a rule, and then stuck to it. And this is a kind of um, very common aspect of our kind of human mind that I think Zen is you know, trying to chip away at or kind of loosen up a little bit. <clears throat> he never told us anything. When I got up 20 minutes earlier than the wake-up bell, I was scolded. Don't get up so early. You will disturb my sleep. Usually if I got up earlier, it was good, but for him, it was not so good. When you try to understand things better without any rules or prejudice, this is the meaning of selflessness. You may say that something is a rule, but rules are already a selfish idea. Actually, there are no rules. So when you say, this is the rule, you are forcing something, the rules, on others. Rules are only needed when we don't have much time or when we cannot help others more closely in a kind way. 
to say this is the rule, so you should do it, is easy. But actually, it is not our way. For the beginner, maybe, instruction is necessary. But for advanced students, we don't give much instruction and then try out various ways. If possible, we give instruction to people one by one. Because that is difficult, we give group instruction or a lecture like this. But don't stick to the lecture. Think about what I really mean. I feel sorry that I cannot help you very much. And that always strikes me as deeply sincere, actually. Like, um, you know, his whole life is trying to sort of express something and kind of help people. Um, and there's a kind of wonderful humility uh, of realizing that that's not always possible. Um, or a sadness or something. I feel sorry that I cannot help you very much. But the way to study true Zen is not verbal. Just open yourself and give up everything. Whatever happens, whether you think it is good or bad, study closely and see what you find out. This is the fundamental attitude. Sometimes you will do things without much reason, like a child who draws a picture, whether they are good or bad. If that is difficult for you, you are not actually ready to practice Sazen. This is what it means to surrender even though you have nothing to surrender, without losing yourself by sticking to a particular role or understanding, keep finding yourself, moment after moment. This is the only thing for you to do. And then he always concludes with, thank you very much. Mm -mm. So I wonder if there are any um, questions or thoughts about Suzuki Roshi's teachings or anything that I've said. Yeah. One thought that comes up is that <clears throat> seeing things as they are and accepting them as they are doesn't mean that there's not an action to take. Mm -hmm. If you walk in and say, oh, the dishes are dirty, well, that's just the way they are. Mm -hmm. <laughs> doesn't really work. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. So that you can accept that they're dirty and that there's something to be done about it. Yeah. That, you know, sometimes that's the case, sometimes it's not, but that it's not always just a, a call to not taking an action. No, not at all. Sometimes I feel like that's pointed out, like, just accept it as it is and stop there. Mm. Whereas, no, not necessarily. Yeah. No, I appreciate that distinction, and I think um, um, you know my understanding of this sort of teaching in in Zen, particularly in Zen, um, of uh, seeing things as they are and then accepting things as they are, is a moment by moment practice, but it's the kind of that's the immediacy of being present. Um, and um, absolutely once if we can do that you know to the extent that we can do that 
when we are really seeing what's happening and we're really accepting, oh, this is the way it is, our kind of action that flows from there will be kind of informed, uh, will have a kind of wisdom. So it's definitely not to say, just accept. Um, that's a kind of um, a shirking of our own kind of life responsibility of, of being here. But I think often when we hear accept things as they are, there, there's an aspect of our mind that can kind of write it off by saying, oh, that's just passive. And I don't think that's the distinction that you're making necessarily, but it's kind of one that I've witnessed in my own mind and, and seen around me. Um, and so I think the really important teaching is that, because when we, if we just say, you know, oh, Buddhism's telling me to just accept everything and that's wrong or that doesn't feel right to me, then we can kind of throw off that practice. It's a way of kind of getting out of having to show up and really accept that this is the way things are. It's a way of kind of trying to bypass that. And that is most commonly the way that we kind of work in the world, I think, is that we don't really want to see um, all of it. We don't really want to see the good and the bad. And so we keep a limited viewpoint and, and um, and move right into like the way I think it should be and having that inform my activity. So if I think it should be different, then I'm going to act and make it different. But what we've bypassed or overstepped the moment where we just say, how is it? What has arisen? What is it asking of me? You know, in a wordless way of just kind of, that's the kind of accept and then actually we have a much better chance to act in a wise way with that kind of um, moment inserted. Um, so yeah, no, I appreciate the distinction because it's not saying the world is messed up and just deal with it. And <laughs> yeah. The last bit of the discussion kind of made me think of like a seed a seed? A seed sprouting, like, could spend its energy sort of like coming up out and mm -hmm. becoming a plant or spend energy invested in growing the roots and like every <clears throat> pause where you say what is and then you say, you like accept and yeah, then can ask I why more. There's like more energy invested in the roots. Mm -hmm. I like that. Because the only way that the plant kind of can survive or is healthy is if it's sort of growing in both directions. So if we don't take that moment to say, what's arising? Mm -hmm. And can I accept that that is the reality? Whether, regardless, outside of my opinion of it, my liking it or not liking it, can I just say, yeah, that, that is what's here. Um, that that effort to grow the roots is the only way that the plant can stay alive or balanced in its kind of growing upright. Yeah. Okay. yeah. It seems like Zazen is a is a path towards learning to draw like a child. Mm -hmm. And yet he says that if you cannot draw like a child if you're not ready for mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I hear some um, 
it feels a little too strongly worded to me as well, maybe. Like, it's, it shouldn't be discouraging people from doing zazen. Like, you have to, like, learn how to sort of be messy and kind of not have a plan before you can then sit zazen. I don't... Um, I think it's actually something we learn in zazen, too. Um, but I think it's just, he's saying it strongly in that sense, just to kind of, um, I don't know, let us know how important it is to, to cultivate that kind of not knowing attitude. But you're right, it sounds a little bit too much to say you have to have that attitude before you can sit something. Yeah. One thing I'd say to that is think about how ridiculous of an idea it is to think that it's a good practice to sit and look at the wall. You know, where did that come from? Where does the idea that this is a good thing to do come from? And I think on some level it comes from a recognition that you're drawing like a child. Mm. So in a way, we already kind of understand that, and that allows us to come and sit down and do zazen. Yeah, and then it makes sense to you. Yeah. Okay, I need to just look at the wall. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Draw on the wall. When I first started practicing in Chapel Hill, they have these wood-paneled walls, and there's like... Um, uh, so the wall you're facing has all these sort of knots and natural designs in them, and... You know, I can't tell you how many hours I've like <laughs> whole scenes and movies happening. <laughs> um, so white walls are kind of harder in that sense. <laughs> it would give your imagination so much to kind of work with. But maybe that's good. All right. Well, thank you all for being here today and for bearing with us as there was, some, you know, some last minute changes, but. Um, yeah, let's keep kind of creating this practice together. Thank you.